0: Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. This podcast is part of a series called Listening to the Stories of Healing that explores the many diverse stories of First Nations peoples. We will look at the many diverse experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and how these narratives have shaped the amazing work that is happening in the First Nations communities across Australia. Here at Emerging Minds, we like to call it the Secret Garden. The stories and experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't always get to see or hear. Whilst these stories include sadness and hurts and sometimes can feel uncomfortable to listen to, it is through listening to these narratives that you will get a glimpse of the deep wisdom, knowledge and healing practices of families and communities and understand why our First Nations peoples are the oldest continuing culture in the world. Raukin is an Australian Aboriginal community situated on the southeastern shore of Lake Alexandrina in the locality of Narung, 80 kilometers southeast of Adelaide. Situated on the lands of the Nutanjidi people, it is the birthplace of David Unipin, the inventor and author whose image, along with the mission church of Raukin, appears on the $50 note. It was originally established as Point Maclay Mission, but was handed back to the Nutanjidi people and renamed Raukan in 1982. Hello, this is Dana Shen, an Aboriginal cultural consultant working with Emerging Minds. Today, this story is particularly important to me, as I am a descendant of the Ngunnawal Nation, and these are my elders and community leaders, Uncle Clyde Rigney and Aunty Rose Rigney. Thanks so much, Uncle Clyde and Aunty Rose, for, for joining me. I wondered if you'd be happy to start talking firstly about your history with Rauken.
1: I was born in Rauken in 1958, which tells you my age. And I started school at Rauken and um, in the early 60s we we left Rauken. Dad had work. But yeah, so those formative years was really memorable times as a child, but also a difficult time. So I've got lots of memories about Rauken.
2: My Connection here is that my parents and my grandparents and so on came from here. Uh, majority of them are Nardinjiti and so always been in this space. I didn't grow up here myself. We were one of the assimilated families, so I actually grew up away from community but still connected to community, not too far away. I'm probably what would be considered an elder, part of eldership in Raukin and we came back here to live about eleven years ago. I married one of the one of the boys from Raucan, and we've been together for quite a while. And he's he spent most of his life on and off of Raucan. He was born on Raucan, yeah. And we we've, we've been involved in leadership on Rauken all the time. Myself, more in a volunteer capacity, uh, and. Uh, now ended up being the chairperson of Rauken. I don't know <laughs> how that came about, but <laughs> there you go. Um, I won't say how old I am, but <laughs> I'm the mother of four children and grandmother of four grandchildren, So, uh, and they've all grown up and moved on as well, so that's good. I suppose you'd call us empty nesters, which is a good place to be. I, I enjoy that space at the moment, so... Yeah, I'm the oldest sister in a family of eight. So I guess uh, I feel like I've always sort of had a position of leadership in a way.
0: Uncle, we're sitting in a, a really beautiful place right now. Could you describe where we are?
1: Yeah, we're sitting in a um, one of our farmhouses, the Ralken Community Council's farmhouses, that we we um, have turned into a retreat. It It's an accommodation for about 12 people. It's another farmhouse that we have been able to fix up, and uh, we got some funding through the um, Solid Generations Repat Fund. And so it's been able to help people come back and be on community, and, and, you know, and we've worked with people coming back from Victoria or Adelaide or you know, New South Wales, people coming back to community. And so it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity for us just to support people on their journey of discovery about who they are, and it, it's it's um, it's quite a motive. It's it's very powerful. It's um, really good to see people realize that they belong, and you can't you know you can't pay for that, yeah. and that's been some of the some of the things that have happened in this place this year. Just you know, four or five groups have come, and so it's been wonderful to help people.
0: It's so important that you're able to do this kind of work, Ankh. Aunty and Uncle, what's it been like growing up for you, you know, particularly in the early years?
1: Well, I guess for for me, when I look back, I recognise that I didn't know it then, but I know it now. Uh, But I always wondered why things were so difficult in our community, watching our community really struggle with change. And I didn't truly understand the change, but it was... It, it was all the changes that was happening around assimilation. And um, I'm a child of the 50s. And so although the late 50s, I was pretty much right in the middle of now families can you know begin to think about moving upper communities and um, have greater opportunity around work. And obviously, at that time, now, People in the community could partake of alcohol. And so Raukin became a very um, quickly a very dysfunctional community where alcoholism, domestic violence. so I'm a child of I'm a child of domestic violence. Um, but the whole community, I'd say ninety five percent of the community you know became locked into drinking drinking to get drunk. But I didn't know at the time, but it was really people who had no transition, no education, no, what people did have was 179 years of not being able to do what everyone else was doing. And so all of a sudden, they could drink alcohol, but most people drank alcohol to drink away the sorrows of their past. But I didn't know that as a child. I just saw the outworkings of it. Um, where men who weren't the bosses of their homes or not really the providers and the protectors that they wanted to be. That was a decision made by other people. I saw a lot of those men quite broken men, broken-spirited men. But now, all of a sudden, you know, come 67, people could have a voice and have the same opportunities as everyone else in mainstream Australia. Uh, or a lot of people thought, uh, you know, it's only the right thing that they should have a vote and a voice, uh, but there was lots of other things that came with it that mainstream Australia just never, never understood. And I don't think, still today, don't understand.
2: When I look back now, we used to have visits to you know, Aboriginal Affairs in Adelaide when, whenever mum and dad needed things. We'd make the train ride down to Adelaide and go to the to see Mrs. Angus, <laughs> who was running the show at the time, um, to get permission to have things. We'd get visits um, every now and then from her, which I, I didn't know about until I was probably in my 40s when when my brother happened to mention it one day about Mrs. when Mrs. Angus would send a message to say she was coming. And Mum would automatically, you know, plan a cleaning day and and so we'd all have to help clean up before Mrs. Angus came, which interestingly enough we still do today. <laughs> Whenever we have visitors, the whole eight of us is we clean up. <laughs> um, so my kids joke is Mum, Mrs. Angus isn't coming. But yeah, that's something that's really affected us is the cleanliness and the you know, to t- almost obsessive, of feeling like you're always being watched and you're always being judged. And sadly, I can see it with some of my kids, so I'm hoping to, to deal with that so that yeah, it doesn't become something I pass on, because it's something that I notice that's just, it's obsessive mm. in my family. In a way, it was a good little place to grow up. It was a f- more of a farming community. Um, we went to an area school, uh, which meant kids were coming in from other farms around the place, and and we we seemed to get on pretty good. I only ever remember one incident where someone you know, called me Blackie, and and the, he got the cane. So. I don't think I knew or understood anything about racism um, back then and and we had we were in a caring community, so uh, people people were always dropping off you know, homemade biscuits or clothes or things like that. but i I never understood it to be because we were Aboriginal. I just thought we grew up in a great community. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were supported in a way. um we, we used to come back to Rauken every now and then for holidays, but there was still a superintendent living on the hill, so um, so we had to go through that process of going and asking permission to be there. And uh, The last superintendent I remember there, I realised couldn't have been very old because when my two eldest grew up and started to go to high school, they were going to high school with his eldest son. So... Things started to come together like wow he, he couldn't have been that old and managing a community where where my father had to get permission to come visit family uh, from from a place where he grew up and then if that person didn't give you permission then you had to turn around and go home um, otherwise you could be dad could have been arrested so yeah but that that, that things I realize now I, I didn't Really know it then.
0: Thanks, Aunt. Uncle Clyde, what are the things or what has it taken for the community to move forward?
1: I think it took 20 years for people to come to terms with how broken the community was. The community was fully engulfed in alcoholism and dealing with the outworkings of domestic violence and just everything that comes when you're dealing with the brokenness of people. And I think it's social and emotional well-being, you know, uh, the depth of that, no one really understands until, you're, until you grow up on a isolated community where you never have any, um, you have no say. You, you know, the rules are driven by a system and not individuals and communities as such. Um, I mean, there are some things where people could have a conversation, but in essence, the community was quite uh, controlled, and people felt that. And I don't. I think when people started dropping like flies, dying of alcoholism, dying of um, violence. Um, Women and families broken apart because of violence. I, I think after 20 years, 25 years, and now all of a sudden we're in the 1980s. People were making different choices and saying, "No, we don't want that." And so I think you know it took a couple of decades to come through that and work through that, and even get to a point where people understood that that's not what they wanted. And and look, there was a small group of people in the community that. You know, the grandmas and some of the, you know, families that made decisions, strong decisions, like, you know, men, I guess, were told by their partners, you know, it's alcohol or me. But, you know, you've got to understand this was happening all around the country and we were just another community going through the same things.
0: Yes, I suppose there are a lot of communities that are still coming to terms with this. What do you think are the things that have really supported that change?
1: I think, you know, the people that were sober were the people, people that went into leadership. And it's like anything, you know, if you've got strong, courageous leadership, people having the courage to stand up against what's not right, and that's difficult on a community when everyone's, everyone's connected, everyone's related, and so you've got people making really strong decisions about this is not the direction that we want to go. And so you know you you have Brocon Community Council that's um you know made decisions about no this is you know we're not going to have people walking around the community with alcohol uh openly you know just you know we want a community that's safe, and today that's what we have. We have a quite a safe community uh, there is no open containers or you know people want to take part in having alcohol, they can do that in their lounge room or in their kitchen, in the privacy of their own home, basically. But, you know, not that there's a a bylaw or anything like that, but it's just what community have said. And so I think all these years later, it's a very different looking community. It's not to say that there's not still issues and there's some people that have more problems than others, but it's not to the degree that it was. But it, it came at a great cost.
0: The community has been through so much. What do you think are the strengths, those cultural strengths, that have supported this as well?
1: When people realise who they are, I mean, you know, like assimilation was a traumatic time for lots of community. My mother was a stolen generation person. Everyone in our community is impacted by it. There's that many people that were broken apart and so then you have people... Because they're in institutions, they don't know how to be maternal or don't know how to be fathers. I mean, that's, re- you know, you're going to have generational problems because of that. And this place where we're sitting today is about that, you know, about a retreat where people can come back and reconnect and be part of a community and have an opportunity to speak with people and understand what's happened to us because it's happened to all of us. No one in community actually can say I'm not impacted, we are all impacted. And because of that, people are making more of an effort now to talk about things like our identity, who we are, uh, what's actually happened to us, trying to make sense of it all. Because if we can't look at our history and make sense of that, we really don't know how to go forward. Uh, and so that's been one of the things that we're wanting to do. We're doing it with men that are coming back to the community, women that are coming back to the community, because they're just are wanting to reconnect. They're wanting to make sense of what's happened to us. And it's only now, and I'm a, I'm a man in my 60s, making sense of my life right now. So it's, it's a good community to, to do that now.
0: Thanks, Uncle Clyde. Aunty Rose, you were talking about the importance of family and connection to culture and how the kids are surrounded by family. Could you talk a little bit more about the importance of extended family?
2: Well, there's always been that importance of, of I mean, that's the structure of, of Narnadjiti and all other groups around Australia, of that that being very important. You know, that's that's the foundation, um, that's part of the framework of, of culture for Aboriginal people is uh, Is the elders and the leaders and the the women and yeah just just family of knowing that that's your family Um, I mean this place here that we're sitting in is is here because it's a place that families can come back to and reconnect and find their roots and learn about all that because they they've been part of stolen generation and, and taken away from that so this place is, is important, um, but then raukan is important because it's that place where people that are connected to Nardinjeri can come home. Raukan actually means ancient gathering place. So, um, so it's still that place of gathering and connecting to family and finding out, you know, the people that, that you're connected to. And, and we, we do that quite a bit. Um, because even today you've still got we still get phone calls from people my hubby got an email just yesterday from a, a woman who's trying to reconnect with her family and all she had was a couple of names which funnily enough ended up being his family you know so 2019 we're still getting those people that are saying I, th- I think I'm connected to there and this is my family name and you know, is there anyone there with the information about that? Thanks,
0: Aunt. Uncle Clyde, if you were trying to explain to a, a non-Aboriginal person the connection and the importance of the connection to country to help in the healing process, how would you describe it?
1: Well, I'd describe it like every, everyone has a place they call home. Everyone has, you know, and everyone feels really comfortable uh, in a place where they know they belong. But when you haven't got that, when you don't know where that is and when no one will tell you where it is, that's really difficult. To walk around and wherever you might be walking around and feel that you haven't got a place that you can call on. I mean that that is the worst possible thing that we can do to our fellow human being. Yeah, you know, to, to say that we're all Aussies and we live in the lucky country and it should be right, mate. Well that's not the case for everyone. And so it's, you know, that is what we're trying to do in this place. You know, we're trying to create a place that people can call home for a little bit and they can find that they may not belong here per se, but they belong somewhere. And so this journey helps them begin their personal journey. And that's what, that's what we try to do here.
0: Uncle, I wondered if you could talk about self-determination and why it's so important for Aboriginal people to have control of their own decisions.
1: Look, everybody that lives in a free country should have the right to determine their own pathway in life. I mean, we would all say in this room today, that's a given, but it hasn't always been that. And it still isn't that for lots of Indigenous organisations and communities like ours. You know, There's always people that think that they know better or they know what's in our best interest. But people have been shaped to believe that. So I don't blame a lot of non-Indigenous peoples for feeling that, oh, they're only trying to help and it's all good intention. They've been shaped to actually believe that we've needed them. But that's not the truth. The truth is Indigenous people lived in this country for thousands of years and got on pretty well. And survived and were agriculturalists and farmers and land managers, aquaculturalists, um, knew how to build, construct. Indigenous peoples were very organized, had social structure. We had our governance, we called it Tendi, and it helped uh, manage many clan groups within the Ngannanjidi nation. So for others to come along, and suggest that we needed them, well, I think there was other things at play. And we could go into all the politics about that, but people really need to search out the shared history of our country to really understand what one group has decided that they would do to another group, and how one group would give themselves a superior position in that. And I think that's what's happened to Indigenous Australia, we've been seen as being inferior, and so it helps uh, those that consider themselves to to be superior to justify many behaviours in our history.
0: As you're talking, Uncle, you're bringing up so many complex issues. I wondered how you would describe if, if, if someone was coming into a service or program and they're working with somebody who has complex issues. They might have AOD or be working with somebody experiencing family violence or something like that. What would you say that workers might not be seeing in that presentation?
1: Oh, well, um, you know, they're they're obviously not seeing where those issues come from. People don't wake up one day and make a decision to be a drug user. Something's driven that. Something's motivated that person in such a way where they're not valuing themselves or not seeing their sense of worth. So there's a big backstory to any form of substance um, misuse in the lives of people. So my suggestion would be for workers to, to the best that they can, get a lot of backstory, try to understand where people come from historically because you're not just dealing with one person, you're dealing with a whole community. And so that whole community could be really helpful, um, but also talk to other practitioners, talk to Indigenous workers that work in that same field. Try to get a regional perspective as well, because there are other workers within the region that understand particular families and have a better history on that family. Try to understand what is it that's been happening to to these individuals, And for how long? What what has been the things that we think have been things that have impacted or changed a person's um, lifestyle from a very young age? You know, whether we whether we're looking at childhood into adolescence into young adulthood, you know, there's a story there, and there's a there's already a journey being taken by this person. So there are ways. But you have to be, again, be prepared to be relational and intimate in community. And you have to be genuine about that. People will see really quickly if you care or you don't. If it's just about doing a job, people are not going to divulge everything when it's just about you doing a job. But if you truly care, people will see that as well.
0: Yes, Uncle, I really agree. It's so much about... um the willingness that workers are to truly care for people, to truly make that connection. Thanks, Unc. Aunty Rose, what would be some of your advice for workers in working with
2: communities? Listen first. I mean, it, it, it's a big deal for, I think, for Aboriginal people to go into a service, but they I think they go there because they're looking for some help. So just listening at first and... and if it's an ongoing thing, have a look at what you you're going to learn from them, because I think you will. Even if you're a qualified social worker, or um, I think there's there's lots to learn through that hands-on experience, and it's not necessarily by the book. I think um, go in with some of your own intuition and ask Aboriginal people uh, who are working in possibly your departments or. If there's someone they'd recommend or books they'd recommend, so if you're really genuine about it, then Google it or research somehow and find out. Most people don't know an Aboriginal person or haven't got an Aboriginal friend, but find them. Go to go to Aboriginal um, functions, you know, NAIDOC or Reconciliation Week, or have a look at what your de- your departments whether they've got reconciliation agreements or um, and read them so you know if you want to if you want to work with Aboriginal people and you don't know about them then find out because really in this day and age I don't know if it's a good excuse if you didn't learn it if you went to uni and you don't feel like you had a good enough experience and search it out because not only will you become a better worker, you'll become a better person for it. I mean, for a lot of us, um, we've actually got to reconcile those things. I know I have for myself. I I couldn't work with non-Aboriginal people if I hadn't worked on my own stuff. I would have been a very nasty person to work with had I just stuck to being angry because I found out the history. But if we can do those things, so can anybody else. And and we become a better nation for it and we're able to offer people better help. So if you're truly wanting to help, then the thing I would say was uh, equip yourself to be able to do that. And not from just one side of the story, because that's what we've been living off of for generations, one side of the story. And there's actually a whole big story over here that's been so well hidden It's scary, and so finding out those things and offering the service that those families are really looking for when they come in. Yeah, so I think that's what I'd encourage you to do. Um, Come visit Raukin and do a tour. (laughs) Um, They're great tours, and it's talking about what we can do together because that's where we're going. What
0: do you think, Uncle Clyde?
1: I think that um, you know, communities like our, ours are continuing on a journey. We love the idea of working with others that um, are like-minded, but pretty much gone are the days where we have an expectation that people come and do things to us or for us. But, you know, we, we want people to become a little bit more mature and try to understand where we've all come from. I don't think many people know it. And so some people roll into a community thinking they've got all the answers, but find out really quickly that they don't uh, because we've never really had the relationship that we, we should have had from the beginning. So there's, there's lots to talk about. Uh, so I'd encourage groups that come in and individuals that come in, come and prepare to learn from each other.
0: So, given that important thinking that's required in working with community, I wondered if you could give an example of when a program or a service has been
2: respectful.
0: What were the things that they did that made them respectful or made them easy to work with?
2: We have a group that comes in fairly regularly. It's a program called Jarwin that came out of... Um, I think it originated from Cape York and Noel Pearson. They've obviously done a lot of work over the years and they, they send they send support workers from corporate... Australia into communities to see we say what we're looking for and then they try and match a person to us for six weeks and the majority of them have worked well. Um, I think we only had a bit of a mishap but I don't think it was the right person. But they actually, they're trained to just come in and sit and listen and watch and and then do what they do and make sure that that's, that's meeting the need of community. Um, so I suppose, basically, don't come in and... Uh, this this was a saying that came to me when, when we first moved down here. It was like, people have to stop coming in and doing things for us or to us. Like, we're actually in a place now where you can come in and do things with us because we've asked you to. If we haven't asked you to, don't do it. Because then you're just going back to doing things for us and to us. And we've had that done for generations. And it really needs to stop. You know, whatever you're coming in for. Because, and it's respecting the intelligence that we've got. And and respecting us as people. Because regardless of what anybody says, we are human beings which may seem like a silly thing to say, but for generations, we have not been seen as even human. And I, and I don't think a lot of that was done even at the beginning. You know, like just sit down for a, for a moment and find out who we are, find out who that family is. What what have they been through, you know? Um, what, what if, it's a, if it's a mum, then what, what's she been through? And, and what's she asking for? And and really listen because, you know, in some communities they came in and built houses because it was, oh, they need houses. And the community said, but that's not what we want. It's not what you're asking for. Uh, If they're asking for a concrete slab with a roof over the top, then give them that. You think they need a house because that's what you need. But, you know, like it's, we're at a time now where we've got to really listen and that, and that's not so easy but you can get there because if if we've changed over all these generations then other cultures and systems can change if you listen and, and listen to us talking and listen what we're really saying and yeah i mean you know it's it, it's hard because it's because it's work but if you really if you really want to help people then stop and listen Use the skills and abilities. And if you're not the right person, then pass it on to someone who is, and that doesn't say anything about you. But, you know, amongst certain teams, there's got to be people in there that are just, it's almost like you're born to do this, you know? One thing I think Aboriginal people have learnt over, the, over our lifetime is who's genuine and who's not. If they don't come back, then they didn't find what they were looking for. It may be a hard thing, but yeah, we, we've got to start somewhere, because to me, to me, personally, I hate seeing a lot of government money wasted because of systems that don't work. You know, like, put put your money in to where it, it really helps. We got a small amount of money to, to renovate this place, and we came in and did it. We employed... One white guy to do, but you know, like he he was really a sort of a handyman. But he knew people from Raukin. Not that he has full on relationship, but he just he's, he was that sort of person that just fit, and we knew that he fitted. But we also knew he could do tiling and you know painting and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. he was the right person, and we chose him.
0: Thanks, Art, Uncle Clyde, and Aunty Rose you talked a bit about the service delivery. I wonder now, what's your view about what a respectful practitioner looks like?
1: We have a worker that has been working with us for a couple of years in a partnership uh, and she's lived in the area for you know, decades, uh, has been involved in education and um, one of the things that she does when she works with us is she's taken the time to build relationships where she actually understands the community, where she's um, spending not only days here, but coming and be involved in activities that might be in the evening. So seeing people in life, seeing people do life. And so, you know, it doesn't take much to, you know, really find out what people are like, but you have to give time to it. And so if you think you're going to be a drive-in, drive-out type of support person, that doesn't really work well especially if it's just between the hours of nine to five and maybe twice a week you're not going to learn much and so you actually have to give time to build relationship relationship is the key and so we've got a worker that we've had partnership with now that has spent weekends you know throughout the week in evenings with youth and getting to know the young people, getting to know the leadership, getting to know individuals within our community, having a coffee in the coffee shop with people, you know, asking questions, um, you know, walking around, having a look at, you know, what the possible projects and that could be, uh, but working with the community, listening intently to what people are saying they're wanting to do, um, being part of helping community project what that might look like but um spending the time to be i would say be a worker but be a a person that is intimate in wanting to find out what all these relationships look like
2: i think just being real and and listening and trying to acknowledge the the other people that are around you and then sometimes changing your way of thinking and working because you think I, th- I think what they're saying is is probably a better way to do it I don't know if that makes sense but from my point of view if you think you know everything and you know you have come in to save us or I'm probably not going to invite you in but we can do that now you know we have we have a freedom that we're able to do that I mean maybe not so much with government but I think there's some things we're learning about ourselves and who we are and how competent we are and, and we've always been. And the problem hasn't been that we didn't see it, the problem is that they haven't seen it. But to me that doesn't matter, I'm I'm going to go on and do what I do anyway. So so it's possibly a better time now in, in our life together. Uh, we talk a lot on Raukan about doing the future together. But as much as we've changed who we are, then there's got to be a whole lot of other change that happens and somehow work, working that out together. Um, kids do it and then we teach them as they get older there's a better way to do it. I'm not sure about that.
0: Thanks, Annie and Uncle. I now wondered if we could um, finish, Uncle Clyde, with you talking a bit about what your vision is for the community. What do you hope for? I think
1: within our community we have people that are like-minded. We we're wanting to get on and develop our community. We're wanting to create opportunities around, you know, young people in our community that they, you know, they be strong, young leaders that are very clear about who they are, where they belong, where they come from, and where they're going to go in the future. And so, that can only happen if, you know, they're supported well. And so we think, you know. We think we're at the beginnings of you know, you know, some significant change, but it, it takes hard work. It takes lots of time and energy, uh, goodwill. Our Indigenous communities, like many Indigenous communities, as much as mainstream society thinks heaps you know, of money is poured into Aboriginal communities, that's not true. Uh, we get very little funding to manage our community and so we have to find ways and, um, and we have volunteers and we have people that um, put long hours and and will never get a, a financial return on that, but people do it because they they care about their community and where they're going you know where the next generations are going to end up and so you know i think I think we've got a a wonderful leadership group at the moment, and you know we have to you know tick the boxes around governance and all those things that the system suggests that we should be doing. But we also need to be doing things for ourselves in a cultural way and being, on, being true to ourselves as well. So, I mean, you know, we're straddling both, both cultures really. I, I just think it, it would look like where the opportunities that have come about and been realised, now we have people that have a quality of life, uh, very clear about who they are, where they belong, and how they benefit each other and how they benefit and contribute to their community and their broader community. I think you'll find that Indigenous Australia are uh, very very welcoming people and I think we've learned that we've learnt what it's been like to be the, on the other side of that and so I think we've learnt that if you we've learned that it doesn't have to be that way it doesn't have to be mean-spirited it doesn't have to be where you isolate groups of people and you oppress groups of people i think if it could be the very opposite to that and create opportunities and bring about well-being in the lives of uh, others um it might be different but that's okay it's all right right to be different and i think that's what we're learning more and more in this country that you know the whole world is different and the sooner we wake up and realise that um, you know there's so much more we could be doing with each other and for each other and to each other um, if we just may recognise that you know we're all part of mankind. You know we all we all are human. And for Indigenous Australia, we've only had 50 years to make sense of you know, this journey, and that's why we are just making sense of it right now. So we're a bit beyond the eight ball, but we're, you know, 30 years down the track, we think we can see there could be, and you know, there's lots of opportunity that we could have, but we've got to work. And we, you know, we're, we're saying to other service providers and that, you know, we, we don't want you to do it for us. We, we want to do it ourselves, but um, uh, we really need to sit down and, and really talk these things out and be really clear about why we're doing it, where we're doing it, and how we will do it. Us as Indigenous peoples, you know, the days are gone when people actually believe that we can't do things, we're very capable.
0: Thank you so much, Uncle Clyde and Aunty Rose for sharing today, and your hope and, and vision for Naranjiti people. Thank you for joining us in our podcast series, listening to Stories of Healing. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.